Good morning, and oh wow, thank you guys for coming out. I guess if you braid the rain, you're not afraid to say good morning either, so it looks like torrential out there. Listen, a while back I told you a story of a relationship I have with a guy in my neighborhood named Robert, and I kind of want to continue this story. Uh, his name, uh, again, is Robert. <laughs> uh, the first time I saw Robert, he was walking down the street, and he was carrying a boombox like this, uh, and like kind of, you know, being in his own world, the only thing is, his boombox had no batteries in it, you know, because he's the crazy guy that lives in your neighborhood. You know, he's the guy who walks down my street, talking and saying weird things that you just want to try to avoid eye contact with, and you're just not sure how he's doing, you know. And um, the last time... Uh, the, when I met him, actually, is uh, I think it was during Hurricane Katrina or one of those, he was like two miles away at a Publix that I had gone to, too, to see if there was any food. And he was walking, and then I, I, say, hey, I pulled over and said, hey, I know you. You live in my neighborhood. And I, my name is John. Do you want to you ride? And he's like, uh, all right. So then after that, he started like walking by my house, and you know, and depending on where he was at, like mentally, he might stop by or do stuff. And, and the last time I talked to you about him, he was pounding on my door, and uh, he, he scared the daylights out of me. And I came outside, and we both started yelling at each other, and then he like left. And then I, I felt bad, so I went over, and then I apologized to him a couple days later. And then after that, we now have this kind of weird relationship where he comes by almost every week, and uh, he knocks on my door. And uh, so he knocks on my door, and he's a strange guy. He gave me this book and some tapes on Kabbalah, which I took and I started listening to. And then he'd be like, so what do you think of those? And I'd be like, well, you know, they're not very biblical. They kind of go against what the Bible says. So, you know, I don't know if they're very godly. And I gave him back, and he got all mad at me about that. So what happens is, depending on his, like, kind of either his medication or I'm not sure what exactly is going on in his mind... When he answers my door, it could be multiple different ways of, uh, like, friendliness. He knocks on the door sometimes, and he'll be like, and I'm like, hey, hey, Robert, how you doing? He's like, good. How do I look today? Oh, you look good? Like, uh, really? So, do I look younger? Yeah, you look younger. How, how many years younger? Uh, ten years? You look ten years younger? Okay. You know why that is? You know why? Because I eat organic meat. Organic meat. You should eat organic meat. You ought to pray to your Jesus about that. He says things like that to me. I'm like, okay. All right. Okay. Have a good day. I'll talk to you later. You know, and some other times, depending like where he's at, he pounds on my door. He opens the door. And he's like, how can you say that Kabbalah's from Satan? I'm like, geez, guy. You know, hey, I'm just telling you, it doesn't line up with the Bible. That's all. You know, and it will argue a little bit, then he goes, you know. And so it's always different. And like, I don't really let him into my house because. Um, you know, my wife, I, I just want to protect her because I'm not sure what he's capable of. And if I'm not there, I don't want him to be too familiar. So when we knock on the door, I always go outside and talk with him on my porch. And then when I come back in, my wife always goes to me, well, so how'd it go? And I'm like, oh, it was, you know, and I'll say, oh, he was calm. I'll say whatever, because he's always different. He's always different. I mean, that's what it is with people like that. You just don't know. Um, you just never know what you're going to get. And, that's, and when I was thinking about life, I'm thinking that's kind of what life is about. Robert's a, life is a lot like Robert. You don't know what you're going to get, you know. Maybe uh, uh, Forrest Gump had something there. Life is like a box of, box of chocolates, right? Because sometimes he's awesome. Sometimes he's weird. Sometimes I don't know what he is. He says he's, you know, he's into all these conspiracy theories, too, that I don't even know what he's talking about. He seems well-read, though. But anyway... Life can be like that. You have like these great moments there and you have these down moments there. The Bible tells us that too. The Bible says that you're going to have good moments and bad moments. Listen to what it says in Ecclesiastes. It's in your outline and on the board or on the screens. 
To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. I swear it's not too late. You guys know the song? To everything turn, turn. All right? That's where it comes from. Because this song and this, this, pro, this Ecclesiastes, the writer would saying, listen, everything comes good and bad into our lives. You know, nobody has all good and nobody has all bad. We have seasons of both good and bad. Life is like a roller coaster. It has its highs and it has its lows for every single person under the sun. Varying times like this can have adverse effects on you and me. Of course, when life is good, man, when we're on highs, right? Life is great. But when we're on the lows, that's when it's tough to keep up hope. You know, when we're in the trying seasons of life, it's common to question God. Like, God, why did this happen to me? Weren't you supposed to watch over me? You were going to protect me. Why did you allow this to happen? Where were you, God, when I needed you? It's in those times that our relationship with God becomes very strained because we're suddenly thinking, where are you? Wasn't it all supposed to be roses? No. We're going to have good and we're going to have bad. And if good and bad are going to come into our lives, then we have to realize this. It's not so much about what comes our way, but the way we deal with the adversity. We're in a series called Engage, Unleash the Power of Now, and that's a study in the book of Esther. If you guys have your Bibles, I want you to open up to chapter 2 of Esther. We're going to start in 19. And Esther is about, this book is about people who took these amazing opportunities, and God did something amazing. He did something wonderful. The idea that I want to talk to you today about is this. It's not about these one-time opportunities. Engaging is not about these simple, single moments of life that we take. Engaging is about every moment in life. About keeping engaged, even when it's tough, even when it's difficult, and even when it's great. Well, you say, oh, that sounds simple. But we all know there are difficult times come. And in these difficult times especially, that is when we need to keep engaged. You see, at any moment... Any time, not just the high times, not just the great opportunities, at any moment is an opportunity for God to work in your and my life. Engaging is not just about a beginning. I'm just engaging and getting started. Engaging is about keeping engaged. Listen, let me bring you up to speed to where we are in the book of Esther if you weren't here the last two weeks. But the story opens like this. This king of the Medo-Persian Empire, he basically owns the whole world at this time. He's like all excited. He throws this huge party to show everybody what he's got. And he's showing all the stuff. And then he says, look, look, you want to see the most beautiful queen in the world? Come on out. And he asks her to come out in her birthday suit. So she flat out refuses. And then everybody says to him, listen, you can't have that happening. Everyone knows that she's disrespecting you. You can't have that. So you do what everyone would do. You kill her, right? Wouldn't you do that? So he kills her. And now he needs a new queen. So he sends this worldwide search for a new queen. And there's this one woman, very beautiful, named Esther. And her, she has an uncle named Mordecai. And they're both Jewish people, Jewish people in that land. And she becomes queen. Now, we're going to pick up in the story in verse 19 of chapter 2. It says this, When virgins were gathered together a second time, 
Mordecai, that was her uncle, sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, the first thing we see is we see Mordecai hanging out in the gate. And at first read, you might think that Mordecai is like the guy you see on the street who's like selling flowers or has a will work for a food sign, right? That he's just hanging out as passerbys. You know, people come passing by. He's got nothing better to do with his time. But that's not the case. In fact, this was a very prestigious position that Mordecai held. You see, when the people at those times sat in the gate, they were elders and judges. And people would come through there, they would bring their matters to these elders and judges, and they would decide what would happen. In Proverbs 31, we see the godly woman. And the godly woman talks, speaks about her husband in this way. Listen to this. Her husband is known in the gates when she sits among the elders of the land. You see, it was a great place to be. Now, Mordecai, we don't know whether he got that position because now Esther was a queen, right? And she's like, hey, why don't you put this guy there? Or he was always there. All we know is that he was there, judging in this area, in the gate. And while he's there judging, he overhears this conversation between these two eunuchs. Now, if you don't know what a eunuch is, that's a guy who's been castrated. And if you know what castrated means, that's a guy who no longer desires women and can't have children. You guys follow my lead? Okay? And the king made him that way. So these two guys, he overhears these two eunuchs talking, and they're the, they're the doorkeepers, and they have this plot to kill a Hazarus. I guess they're mad at him. Now, a eunuch, the king would have a eunuch mostly because he would take care of the queen, the, the, prin the princesses, and his harem, right? Because at least he knew that the bloodline came from him, right? So these eunuchs, maybe, maybe they knew the Queen Vashti, the first queen who got killed. And maybe they're just mad at the king. So they want to lay hands on him. They want to kill him. And so Mordecai overhears this and he says, listen, I'm going to tell Esther. Esther tells the king. The king checks into it. He finds out it's true and they kill him. Now, I don't think that Mordecai was doing it for a reward, but I have to be wondering, you know, they jotted all this down, but like, uh, what about a little something for the effort, king? You know, I just saved your life. I mean, do you even care? Do you even care that I did that? You know, if we flip over to chapter 6, don't go there, but if you were just to go to chapter 6, it's only a few pages away, we're going to find out that the king can't sleep one night. And that night, he can't sleep, so he's up, and there's no overnight pizza huts, and there's no late night HBO, and he can't, he can't sleep, and he's got to do something, so he calls one of his court guys in, he says, start reading the minutes of the judging or whatever, and so they're reading, and then, you know, he's trying to fall asleep because it's got to be boring, and he comes across this thing and says, this guy saved my life, and I never recognized him for it. So he's like, hey, let's do something about it. But I want you to understand that even though it's only a couple pages away, it was four years later. Four years later. I mean, imagine Mordecai. Like, does this guy care? I mean, did someone else get the credit for this thing? I mean, why, why should I have even bothered? Why should I even bother to save his life? Doesn't seem like he cares. Not so much as even a thank you. And by the time that the king does really recognize Mordecai, he, Mordecai probably forgot about it. Listen. Pull out your outlines, if you will, because I'm going to give you 
things that you should know about staying engaged. And the first one is this. Don't be discouraged when results aren't instant. Don't be discouraged when results aren't instant. We live in a world where everything we want, we can have like instantly, right? You want to ship overnight to another country? We can leave Miami here today and it can be London tomorrow, right? If it's paperwork, all I really have to do is print it, sign it, scan it, email it, and it's there in a few minutes, right? Listen, you want it now? Don't worry, you can pay in 2012. You can have it right now. You know, when I'm driving down the road and I get lost or I need to find a bank or something, I pull out my iPhone, check the GPS, boom, I got it. I can have everything. Everything is at our fingertips. We're accustomed to having things right now. So it's easy to become discouraged when things in life don't turn out like we'd hoped. You know, maybe you're the single person still looking for a godly mate. Man, I was supposed to be married by 30. Lord, what are you doing? The businessman that's struggling to be honest. I'm the one doing the right thing and everybody else is making a killing. Why am I being honest? Listen, everyone else is doing this, so why should I be the only one who isn't? And so we begin to think, Lord, we need some instant results here. If there's one thing that we learn from the book of Esther, and it's written, God's hand, fingerprints are all over this book, is that God's timing is just right. His timing is just right. See, we become discouraged when things, when we do the right things and we don't see a positive result, don't we? We, do, we work really hard, we get things done, we try to do what's right, and then nothing. See, because we quantify how, what we did right by what it produces, how tangible it is, what I can see, what I can feel. You know, if we graded everyone on this basis, then Jeremiah would have failed, the prophet Jeremiah. You see, Jeremiah, he was this prophet. God kept telling him to give this word to Israel. He goes to the kings and he goes, listen, king, Babylon's going to destroy us. You should surrender. No, I'm not going to surrender. They don't listen. So they destroy all the area. Then they destroy Jerusalem. Then the remnant, there's another king, and then the remnant guy goes, he goes, listen, we shouldn't go down to Egypt. So what do they do? They go down to Egypt. And they take Jeremiah captive with them. He's like, this guy can't win. But look, 2,000 years later, his book is in the Bible, and we're reading the very words of God. You see, if we were in his time, we would have said you were a failure. But we don't know the end yet, and God does. That's why God encourages us like this in Galatians. Listen. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. God is encouraging us to hang in there because we haven't seen the end result yet. You see, in the story right now, Mordecai is going to wait four years. He doesn't know the end result. But he says, listen, hang in there. Don't be discouraged from doing what is right. You see, keep doing what's doing good. Uh, excuse me. Keep doing good always and don't be discouraged. God is saying, listen, stay engaged. Stay engaged with me right now. Do what's right because you don't have my perspective. You're not sure what's going to happen in the end, but I do. You see, though we don't know immediate results, God is always doing something. Have you guys ever heard this expression, a watched pot never boils? Anybody hear that? You guys are giving me the same expression that my wife gives me, okay? She's a Colombian. I'm American. I give her American expression. She goes like, what does that mean? And then I explain them, and then she's like, wow, that's pretty wise. And then I, I should start saying I came up with it, okay? A watched pot never boils. That's what it means. A watched pot. You put a pot on the stove, and you put water in it, and then you watch it. This thing's not boiling. This thing's not boiling. It's taking forever. You know, it's like, because when you watch it, nothing seems to be happening. 
But you walk away from that pot for five minutes, right? Ten minutes. And you walk back. You come back to that pot. And it's like rolling. It's boiling like crazy. And that's the idea behind it. You sit there because you're so close to it sometimes and you're doing the right thing. You don't see the result and you don't know what God is doing. You see, God is always doing something in our lives. God is waiting in Malachi's and excuse me, Mordecai's life to use what he's done for the right purpose and the right timing. He's waiting for the exact timing for this to be revealed, for him to be rewarded, because God's going to do something greater. All you, all that you're doing now that's right, the right things you're doing, God is going to use them at the right time to be the most effective. You see, Mordecai's act right here, what he does right now, is going to play a key part later in the story in saving all the Jews. All of them. You see, God is working behind the scenes sometimes when we don't know what's going on. We think because we don't see instant results that it hasn't worked. But God is still working. Listen, let's read a little bit further in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. It says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. There's about a four-year gap between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And over this time, we see this new man is introduced. This guy rises to power named Haman. Haman rises to power and he finds favor in the king for whatever reason it was. And the king says, look at, I want, this guy is so awesome. He's so great that he's like, kind of like me. And so whenever he goes anywhere, everyone is to bow down and worship him. Well, Mordecai has a problem because he's a Jew. And he says, listen, I've got these ten commandments that God says I have to obey. And the second one says I can't bow down or worship any other gods or anything else. You see, in the Persian culture back then, to bow down to the king was to assign him deity. You're paying homage to me because I am part God, as most of the cultures decided they thought they were. They thought they were gods, they were kings because they were able to do so much. I mean, they were, he was the ruler of the world. But Mordecai can't do that. Mordecai says, I can't bow down. Listen, the Jewish people lived in that area. They, go, they ask him, why are you, can't you do this? And he says, well, I'm a Jew. And the Jewish people had been under the Medo-Persian Empire, had been captive for over 100 years. You see, it started 100 years ago. The Babylonian kingdom came in to the land of Israel. And they wanted world domination. So they take out Israel. They take out Jerusalem, and they bring these people captive back to Babylon. And now there's this new up-and-coming empire called the Medo-Persian Empire, and they wipe out Babylon, and now they're the new rulers. And they have all these Jewish people living among them who have different culture, different religion, all these different things. 
And some of these Jewish people had returned 30 years before Mordecai. You see, they were allowed to go back and build the temple. Now imagine in Jerusalem, they go back, they build this temple. But over here, they have protection, they have security. Over here, there's no wall surrounding their city. Over here, they've got guards and people watching out for them. Over here, they're having trouble farming the land and raiders and people are coming into the land. It's very difficult. So there's a lot of people still over here that are saying, Jewish people saying, well, Lord, I don't know if I should go back here yet because it's kind of tough, but I don't know if we should be staying here. We've been here so long. Lord, I feel like you're not even around. Lord, I feel like, I feel like you're, we're in limbo here. Mordecai, well, I'm like, he's in limbo. Like, where are you, Lord? A hundred years. Listen, this is the second thing I want you to learn about staying engaged. And that's number two, persevere through the dry spells of life. Persevere through the dry spells of life. Have you ever felt like you were in limbo with God? You ever felt that way? Felt like you heard from him, but he hasn't showed up for, for a while? You're like in this desert season. The Bible doesn't seem to do much for you when you read and you pray. And you seem to do, those prayers just seem to bounce off the ceiling right back at you. And you just feel kind of disengaged from God. Listen, the Bible says that we're coming upon times that are going to be like that. Where people are going to start feeling disengaged from God. Listen to what it says in 2 Peter. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is his coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on on as it has Since the beginning of creation. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He says in this kind of time period, people are going to be questioning. Hey, is God still working? Because I don't see much happening. You know, you've got this book over here. You've got this Bible that you've been, you keep thumping around. But you know what? It's all the things. I haven't heard anything else from God. Why are you believing in that? Where is the promise that he's coming back? They're like in this, this end times, like this giant dry spell. You know, when we read the Bible, we think like it happened in rapid succession, like all these awesome things kept happening. You know, like you read the book of Acts and there's miracle, miracle after miracle after miracle. And we don't really realize that it, sometimes it was 10 or 20 years between those events. You know, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And Malachi writes just shortly after this story takes place, less than probably 40 years. And he writes, and then we don't hear from God for 400 years. God's just quiet until John the Baptist shows up. Like, God's not speaking to the Jewish people. He's not doing anything. I mean, talk about a dry spell. 400 years. Nothing is going on in their lives. I believe this. I believe that true faith comes down to the dry spells. I believe that that's when true faith really speaks. I talk a lot about this because I believe that this is where the rubber really meets the road. I think when we first come to the Lord, God does like some amazing things in our lives, you know, and like he seems like he's always there for us. Maybe he does some kind of signs or miraculous things in our lives or like he just we feel like that excitement that we know the Lord. Uh, we're, we're so overjoyed to read his word, to worship and we're really on this like kind of high. And then after a while, that kind of dips down. I think God like lets us out a little bit, lets out the leash a little bit and, and says, OK, let's see how you do, because I want your faith to grow. I think this is the hardest faith of all. 
Trusting God when we don't feel His presence. I think that's the most difficult faith. Actually, I think this is when we understand what your faith is really is. Because faith is not about a feeling. It's easy to act in faith when we feel like it, isn't it? It's easy to forgive when I feel like forgiving you. It's easy to be nice to you or be good or do good when I feel like doing it. I can convince myself that I'm being like God. And I do that. I'm not just saying that for everyone else. I do that. I have the highs and lows just like everybody else. And when I'm feeling great, those are so easy to do. But I have to ask myself this question. What about when I don't feel like it? What about when I don't feel like being obedient or following after God or doing good? You see, faith is really not associated with the feeling. It's associated with an action. You should write that down. Faith is not associated with a feeling. It's associated with an action. God tells us this, that Abraham believed God and he accounted it to him for righteousness. When the Pharisees come to Jesus, they say, what may we do that we do the work of God? And he says, believe. Believe in the Son whom he sent. Believe is what he says. Listen, these are the most difficult times of life. These are the most difficult times when we're in the doldrums. When we're in the low parts of, parts of life. And the, the, the writer of Hebrews, that's why he warns us this. It's in your outline. It says this. It's crucial that we keep a firm grip on what we have heard so that we don't drift off. Listen, underline heard for a minute. Heard. Heard means the Bible. Keep a firm grip on the things that you've heard, the things that God has taught you, the things that are right, the things that you know to be true from the Bible. Keep a firm grip on those because it's so easy to drift. Because when we hit those dry spots and everything seems to be wrong, we have to fall back on what we know to be true. And knowing is not a feeling. True faith is following God despite how we feel. Man, it's hard to give somebody when you're still angry with them. How hard is that? Right? How hard is it to forgive somebody you're still angry no, no, I've got to wait for the anger to subside, then maybe I can forgive him. How hard is it to pursue God when you don't feel him? Well, I picked up the Bible and the man I just didn't speak to me. I've tried to pray, nothing's happening. How hard is it to do good when everyone else isn't? This is true faith. This is true faith. It's acting, not just going by our feeling. And I think this is where most of the people run into trouble. Because they go by their feelings and not by what God says. You see, Mordecai, Mordecai, he gets hard-pressed. They go, listen, all the servants are hanging around. They say, and they're watching him. They try to encourage him. Listen, just bow down. Will you bow down? And he goes, no, I'm a Jew. And they say, oh, yeah? Well, we're going to tell Haman, and we're going to see if your word stands. Like, we're going to tell Haman, and Haman's going to confront you. We're going to see if you still be a Jew, and you still do what you're supposed to do. See if your actions will back up your words. You know, in the book of Esther... The, God is not mentioned once. Not one time. Neither is prayer, neither is sacrifice, neither is the temple, any of these. None of this is mentioned even once. And yet somehow, Mordecai, by not bowing down and declaring he's a Jew, implies that God is all over the place, doesn't it? All that needs to be said is that they're Jews. And the rest was understood. When God does not seem to be around, it's the commitment of his people that will say it all. Listen, let's read a little bit further in the story. Verse number 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month 
which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the providences of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamathida, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you. Do to them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and the decree was written according to all that Haman commanded. To the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to all the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring, and the letters were sent by courier into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Man, so Haman does this weird thing. He gets these like magicians, the Persian astrologer people and all these guys. And he goes to them and he says, listen, first, let's pick out a lucky day. So they go, they start rolling the bones, cast lots. That's what it's called. What's Pur means. And then Purim is going to be the celebration of this later. The Jews celebrate Purim in celebration of this book and what happens here. But they're casting lots and they go one day, two day, three day, four day, all the days. They check each day and they roll and they see which one is the best. And they go through every day of the year and they finally find one. And then by chance, this is the one, because they believed in faith, they believed in chance, that's the way they believed their gods worked, etc. But what they didn't understand is that God was in control of that chance. That God was working. That God was picking out that day almost a year later. Because God had a special thing planned. Haman thought he did, but God did. So Haman goes to the king, listen, we got this lucky day, and here are these people in your kingdom, they don't obey you, they follow their own rules, they follow their own God. Let's just wipe them out. And King Ahasuerus says, okay. I mean, this guy says yes to anybody who wants to kill somebody. That's what I've seen in this book so far. So he goes, okay, let's kill them. Let's wipe them all out. Here, take my ring. You make whatever you want to do happen and go and do it. So he goes and does it. And the decree goes out across the whole land. And as the tree goes out, the decree goes out across the whole land, you know, then the king and, and, and Haman sit down and they have a drink. I mean, like, wow, they really care about all these people. But the people in the city go, what the heck is going on? What, what is this? You're going to wipe out all these people? I mean, what about Mordecai? I'm thinking about Mordecai here. Mordecai saved this king's life. And now this king is going to wipe out his people. What is going on? There's one more thing that you should know about staying engaged. Be obedient even when you don't understand why. Be obedient, even when you don't understand why. When I was in college, I went to, uh, I had a friend that I, I knew in high school that went to the same college as me. His name was Scott. I told you a story about him last time I preached. 
Well, Scott and I lived in the same dorm. It was a 26-story building. We were on the 10th floor. And he lived a couple doors down from me, a couple rooms down. Well, one day we walked down out of the, the building. And outside there's a bunch of tables. And Christians are signing up people to have a Christian come and visit you and speak to you. right? And at that time, I think I thought I knew the Lord. But I really didn't know the Lord as well as I knew, thought I knew the Lord. And I thought, oh, this would be a good trick. I'll sign Scott up. And some guy will come to his door. And then won't that be funny? You know? So... I signed Scott up, and then a few days go by, whatever, and um, maybe a week or two, whatever. I'm sitting in Scott's room, hanging around, not doing anything. All of a sudden, doors open. Doot, doot, doot. The guy shows up. And I'm like, why did it have to be while I was here? You know, and so the guy starts talking. Scott, hey, is Scott, is Scott here? Yeah, I'm Scott. And he's like, hey, you signed up so that you could have a Christian guy like me come talk to you, and I wanted to share the gospel with you, et cetera. And Scott's like, I didn't sign up for anything. He's like, no, 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 you signed up. Oh. And he goes, well, you know what? Sometimes a lot of guys play tricks and they sign, other people sign other people up. And I'm like, wasn't me, wasn't me. <laughs> you know, I'm in the room, I'm thinking, gosh, how, how could this happen? You know? So I thought I'd play this joke on Scott. And then there's this guy, so he just starts talking. He's a real nice guy, real nice Christian. And we're like, well, we were heading down to the dining commons. Uh, we're going to ride the elevator. Why don't you ride with us? You know, 10 stories. So we get in the, in the elevator, and he starts talking to us, and he just starts sharing, like, kind of his story. And he starts saying, you know what? I went to this school, and I was a Christian, and I really saw that there was not much Christian influence here, and I really wanted to come back and bring the gospel to all these people. And so what I decided, I could have gone and got this job, but I decided to move back to Amherst, move back to this area, and, uh, and I just ministered to people. And, like, on Saturday, we're going to have a soccer game and all this other stuff. And as I sat there, this whole ride down, I'm just started thinking, not only am I a heel, but I'm just thinking, man, I'm amazed at this guy's faith. I'm amazed at this guy, that he would, you know, really care about other people and really want to reach out to them for God. And I've never forgotten that elevator ride down because it inspired me to do what I do now, to say, you know what, I want to do something like that. I walked away from that thing thinking I was playing a trick on Scott and God was... Playing a trick on me. God turned that whole thing around. You see, sometimes we don't understand why. I'm like, man, I'm setting this up, but God's setting up something totally different. And something else happens instead of what we thought was going to happen. You see, I think sometimes we don't believe. One of the things that keeps us from, from following after God, from trusting Him so much and doing what He says, is because we don't believe that God wants what we want for ourselves. We believe that God wants what's best for us, but not maybe what we want. You see, there's a difference. Let me put it to you this way. Maybe you're a guy, and you say, wow, this is the woman I want, this knockout, beautiful body, awesome girl, this is what I want, Lord. But Lord's, what the Lord's got for me, this so-so-looking girl, that's probably better for me. That's what we think, right? We think God is going to give me what's best, not what I really want. In life, And so sometimes we cut the corners and we say, no, 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 I'm just not going to be obedient because I don't know if God really wants what I want. You see, God, do you really want what I want? Do you know what I want? I know you want what's best for me, but do you want what I want? That's the question. Listen to what the Lord says in Psalms. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his godly people. For those who fear him will have all they need. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. God's telling us, listen, you trust in me, and you're not going to lack anything. You're going to be satisfied. 
You know, the first time that Mordecai takes a stand, right? I'm going to tell people. I mean, I'm sure there's other people in this gate that knew the plot. And he goes, listen, I'm going to come forth and I'm going to let it known. And so he lets it known. And what happens? Well, he gets something. It's a little bit late, four years later, right? But the second time he makes a stand, listen, I'm going to be one of your people, Lord. I'm going to let people know about that. It brings destruction on him and his people. What's up with that, God? I don't understand what you're doing here. You see, I was doing what was right. I was being good. I was letting people know about who I was, who you were, and look what you're going to do. You're going to wipe us out. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand it. This is not supposed to happen. Let's just stop the story right here because this is not what's supposed to happen. This is not the way it's supposed to work. A lot of times... We, we don't want to do something maybe that God has for us because it doesn't make perfect sense to us, right? Many times we don't want, we only want to make, we only want to do what God says if it's going to make sense to me and where I'm going. <clears throat> and maybe if I can see why, then I'll do it. There was another guy named Haman in the Bible. And he lived about 200 years before this Haman. And this other, the, new, the first Haman, this Haman, he was a commander in the Assyrian army. And he was an awesome guy. I mean, he was wins all the wars. He's doing everything. He's great. He's a powerful commander. But he has a problem. He's a leper. He's leprosy. And during one of his campaigns or whatever, he brings back an Israeli girl and this Israeli girl becomes his maid and she says, hey, I know somebody, I know a God in Israel that can do something about your condition. And so she goes, okay, um, I know a prophet who can help you. But you have to go to Israel. So he goes down to Israel. And he goes to find this prophet, and he does find him. I've written it in your outline so you can follow along. Listen to this. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abanan and the far part, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Haman goes and he says, listen, this is what I was expecting. I was expecting to show up and this man of God comes out and says, be healed by the name of the Lord my God. And it doesn't happen. He's like, that didn't happen. And then he wants me to go wash in this mucky Jordan River. we got better rivers where I come from. Why am I going to go do that? It doesn't make sense to me. Well, you're telling, I don't understand why you would even want me to go to the Jordan. I'll probably get another disease. Naaman thought there was a lot better place for him to bathe. It just doesn't make sense. But his servant pointed out that it's not about the task. It's about being obedient. Hey, you could have done a bigger thing. You could have done a smaller thing. But it's about being, doing what he said. So let me get back to my friend Robert for a minute. Robert and I have become kind of friends, albeit a weird relationship that we have. But now he knocks on my door every week. No joke. He knocks on my door, and this is what happens. He has something that he needs done. Sometimes he wants a ride. 
he wants stuff done at his house and he like demands that I do it. Kind of like, hey, I've got this. Come over and do it. You know, and I'm like, dude, what's up? So I go to his house right now. I fixed his uh, I fixed his bathroom shower. I fixed the, the the leak underneath his kitchen sink. I fixed the, the, the little breeze thing under his door. I fixed his dryer. I mean, this guy all the time. And then he treats me bad, too, at the same time. He's like, listen, I don't like you talking, you know, while I'm in his house. I'm like, I'm asking you something. Your voice is hurting my ears, he says to me. I'm like, Lord, what am I doing in this place right now? And that's what I'm thinking, honestly. What am I doing? Like, is there some kind of a reward for what I'm doing? Like, he's not paying me. I don't even know if he has the mental capacity to come to the Lord. Like, I'm doing all these good things and maybe something will happen. I don't think he does. Like, I, I go down, I, you know, we go to shop and stuff. I show up and people think he's my dad, you know. They're like, I'm like, come on. Like, no, he's just my neighbor, you know. No, there's no reward in what I'm doing. So why am I doing it? There's no earthly reason why I know except for this. God tells me to do it. This is what it says in the Bible. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's really the only reason I do it. He takes up my time. Takes up my gas. Because God says that I need to love my neighbor as myself. Whether it makes sense or not. Because that's how we become people of faith who are trusting in God and living out our Christian lives and engaging in God in the highs and the lows. You see, this idea applies to everything. The Bible tells us to serve our bosses. Yeah, but he sucks. I don't want to serve him. How about love your wives? Well, my wife isn't very lovable. Wives, respect your husbands. Well, he's not very worthy of respect. Be honest. Nobody else is being honest. Why should I? Listen, it's not about like being a Christian on Sunday. Sometimes the Sabbath, I think, you know, tricks us a little bit. Because we think, oh, Sunday is the day we go and worship the Lord, right? But listen, in Israel, they worship the Lord every day. Seven days a week, they came with sacrifices. They came and worshipped. They were always coming to the temple. There wasn't a day that didn't do that. You see, we find out that the Sabbath is about man. Jesus said, listen, the Sabbath's not for God. It's for man so that he may rest. The Sabbath is about rest. But listen, every day, every day should be dedicated to God. Every day we should stay engaged in every season, in season, out of season, good season, bad season, no matter what comes our way. You see, just like the book of Esther, we're still in the middle of the story. Maybe you're in a low point. You're just in the middle of the story. We're in the middle of the story right now. And nothing's looking good. We're filled with dry spells, filled with confusion, filled with not getting what we thought we were going to get. But you see, there's something coming that's going to turn this whole story around. We just don't know it yet. In this point in the story, we don't know it. We don't see what God's going to do yet. But God's going to do something amazing. And that's why it's important that we stay engaged in the low times, in the difficult seasons. You see, there's something in your story, right where you're at right now, that God's going to turn around. But you just don't know it yet. Listen, I want to tell you a story of my friend Dean. My friend Dean, he grew up, his father, he grew up with his father for 15 years. His father was an alcoholic, he was abusive, he was arrogant, he was a jerk, he abused him. Him and his sister, and they said, you know what, we're out of here. At 15 years old, he went to live with his mom. Now he's in his 30s. And sporadically, he's seen his father here and there. About seven years ago, he gets a call. He says, from his aunt, he says, you better go see your dad. So he's in the town, he goes and sees his dad. And 
His dad opens the door and he's like in kind of a hospice condition, you know, because this guy's been abusing alcohol, abusing his life all this time. And it's catching up with him and he's starting to shut down his body, his organs and things are starting to shut down. So Dean goes to the door, says hi to him, starts talking to him. Hey, listen, Dad, I've become a Christian and I just want to let you know about the Lord. You see, I know who you are. I know what the type of person you are. I know you need the Lord. And he says, you know what? You don't know anything that I need. And I don't want to hear about it from you. And he slams the door in his face. So Dean goes away. A few months ago, just a few months ago, he gets a call from his aunt. And his aunt says, listen, you better call your dad. He calls his dad. The dad's in the hospital. And he says, he starts talking with him again. He says, listen, I want to share the Lord with you. It's not too late. I think you need to hear about the Lord. And he starts to talk to him about forgiveness. And his dad says, you know what? Hey, I got to go to the bathroom. See you later. Click. And hangs up on him. Dean gets another phone call. This time it's from the hospital. The doctor's nurse says, listen, um, you've got to come down and give us permission to turn off his machine. Because he's comatose, he's non-responsive, and he's not getting better. And Dean thinks about that. And he says, you know what? I believe... I'm going to stay engaged because I believe that God is going to do something yet. I believe that God still has something left to do. So Dean shows up and the nurse actually writes a letter to Dean. And so I want to read that letter to you right now. I am an ICU nurse in a Florida hospital and was working one evening caring for Dean's father as he lay ill in the hospital bed. In my profession, and especially in the intensive care unit, I often witness many tragic events which commonly result in death. However, I also see many seemingly impossible miracles as well. In my particular hospital, it's not acceptable to speak of Christ as the, hosp- <clears throat> as the hospital is not affiliated with any particular denomination and does not want to offend anyone who may be of another faith. Having just met Dean and only knowing him for a few minutes, I could tell he was filled with Christ and couldn't help but talk about Christ with everyone that came into contact with. He's on fire for the Lord and he yells it from the mountaintop. Amen, brother. As I mentioned before, the events in the ICU are often tragic and therefore difficult for many of the patient's family members to deal with. Emotional screaming, cries of desperation, and even physical breakdowns are commonplace as events unfold and family members learn of their loved one's condition or death. Upon learning the facts of his father's condition, Dean was clearly saddened but accepted his father's impending death. Dean's incredible kindness towards me and his inner peacefulness are the first things that stood out about him. After speaking with Dean and his family and answering their questions, I I left briefly to check on another patient. Upon returning to the room, I noticed that all but Dean had gone. He was quietly sitting in the chair in the corner. I began talking with Dean again and learned that he was estranged from his father and the two only spoke on occasion. When they did talk, Dean shared the saving grace, mercy and forgiveness of Christ, but his father was not ready to hear it. So now Dean was standing by his dying father's bedside for just one last hope that somehow he could be saved. We prayed over his father and Dean said, Dad, if you hear me, move your left foot. When his father's foot moved, we were shocked and amazed. The simple motor response from a comatose patient defiled explanation and we were clearly not prepared for it. Were our eyes playing tricks on us? Maybe it was just a reflex. But that was all cleared up after Dean asked his father, Dad, do you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior who is able to forgive you of all your sins, who loves you and wants you in his heaven? Dean asked him to respond again by moving his left 
foot. And he did. Listen, in Dean's situation, it was all but lost. You talk about a dry spell. You talk about a situation that you don't understand. And yet God is able to move in ways that we cannot. Listen, for you today, sometime that something that you've been striving for, it may be just around the corner. And that's why we need to stay engaged. You see, you may feel finished, but God is not finished yet. 